<laughs> the whenever I did my first solo and I was actually airborne, I was like, well, I'm going to have to do it now because he's not here to bail me out and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm. that's when it hit. That's when it hit. Once I finally took off and because all he does is have you do a few patterns. That's when it hits. That first pattern is like, I'm really doing this. And then when you actually land, pull the flaps up and take off again, it's, it's like all better after that. And uh, the, the next time it hit, I think it was a few lessons after that, uh, or, or my next solo flight after that, he told me to go off and fly like 20 miles southeast over in, into the practice area. That's when it, it hit again. Now I'm leaving the airport, the comfort of the airport. Now I'm out here in BFE, Oklahoma. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I speak with Donnie Hayes, a firefighter paramedic who joined the Navy after becoming a firefighter and became a Navy corpsman. He deployed to Iraq in 2007, and I met him in probably late 2009 at Fourth Recon. We talk about life. We talk about his passion for flying, raising animals on his farm ranch style home that he has in Oklahoma. And we talk about dealing with what just happened in Afghanistan. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us. Leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, or wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small. We're trying to get bigger. And all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And... The best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. All right. So let's set this up and do this. All right. I'm back with uh, my buddy, Donnie Hayes, who I was over at Fourth Recon. Well, uh, we were both in. Donnie was a Navy corpsman and did some deployments. I want to talk to him today, especially get his feelings on what's happened over the last couple of weeks. So I just want to say welcome, Donnie. Hey, man, I appreciate it. So you joined the Navy when? I uh, enlisted in 2004. So 2000. Okay. So you were in for what? Almost 14 years, 13 years, somewhere around there? Yeah, 13 years. Damn. That's how long I was in. So did you know you wanted to become a corpsman when you came in? I actually wanted to be a Marine. First off, uh, the Marine Corps said I was I was uh, too overweight. So um, a buddy of mine told me about Corman, uh, what that was. I was already a paramedic at the time, so I was, felt like that was a good opportunity to give back the skills I'd learned. Um, so found out about being a Corman, walked over to the Navy recruiter. They also said I was too fat, so I spent the next six months trying to get in shape. And I was able to get sworn in October... 14th, I believe. So you came of in... Of 2004. Did you come in directly into active duty, or did you come in as a reservist? No, I've been reserved the whole time. Okay. 
So you were already a paramedic. So were you already working for the fire department? Yes, I, I was working for a fire department at the time, and I was working EMS uh, on the side as well. Okay, so when um, when did you like decide, hey, it's time for me to go into the military? Um, I, I first had um, the the thought first crossed my mind after nine eleven. I was in the fire academy, and um, we had just finished. PT and a buddy of mine who's also a, a, a Navy vet, he was a CB. Um, we come out of the gym and he says, Hey, did you hear an airplane crash into the towers? And I was like, No, nah, I didn't hear anything about it. So I uh, got my car to head back to the uh, academy and uh, listen to the news. And nobody had really picked it up yet. That's how quick it had happened. He saw it on the TV on the way out. So um, by the time I found a news station that, or a radio station that picked it up, um, that's when the second plane hit and I knew that it was getting real at, at, at that point. So, uh, we sat and watched that like every day or not every day, but we sat and watched that like all day that day at the uh, training center. Um, and it, it was at that point I first started to think about maybe, you know, going guard or reserve or some, something along those lines. But then we went into Afghanistan and it seemed like it was going to be over and done with um, pretty quick. Because I also grew up, you know, during Desert Storm and that lasted, what, you know, two months, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's... So um, went. Yep. Oh, I was just going to say, so that I think Desert Storm set some really bad expectations for what was going to come. You know, kick Iraq's exactly. ass in two months. Exactly. And yeah. Yep. So what was your final catalyst why did why did you decide hey uh at this point in time i'm a firefighter i'm a paramedic it's time to do this uh whenever we went in 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 march of of 03 that's when i decided to go in i was uh at home and i was watching the invasion unfold and i felt you know i'm i'm a single guy i have no dependence. Um, I felt like I've, I've, I've got a skill set that I could use. So um, that's when I first thought about getting in. And again, the expectation from from Desert Storm, I was like, well, this is going to be over in like you know two weeks or a couple months. So um, w when it kind of went through the end of December or yeah, the end of 03, that's when I started thinking about recruiters and stuff, went to go talk to the Marine Corps Reserve Unit in my hometown. Um, Earlier in 2004, that's when they were like, no, you're too big and stuff like that. And uh, then I went to go talk with the Navy. And that was about June of, of 04. And then from, from that point on, it was, you know, dieting and PT and everything until I lost weight. And then, yeah, I got sworn in October 14th of, of 04. So did they send... So I know back then when you came in, so October 14th was about... Oh my God. It was about two and a half weeks before I re-enlisted in 2004. I think I, I think I did my first, uh, my re-enlistment probably October 31st. Um, there was in the reserve world, uh, APGers who didn't, mm -hmm. who did it differently. Okay. That's what I was trying to get at. So you yep. went advanced pay grade. That was me. Yeah. So did yep. they, did they send you up to boot camp? 
Say again. Did they send you up to boot camp? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you had been yeah. through the fire academy already then. Right. And you were kind of used to probably getting yelled at a little bit. How was boot camp for you? It's still tough. I tell everybody, um, if you've never been in that type of environment, it doesn't matter what branch. Um, Navy boot camp was still very challenging and stuff. If you've never had structure quite like that, then it's it's it takes some getting used to, you know. So, but I feel uh, after after I did boot camp and I went to to camp June slash Cap Johnson for field man i felt that was a lot harder than than great lakes was so oh yeah yeah field med is definitely harder i forgot to ask how old were you when you actually got to boot camp i was 24 whenever i went okay so you weren't that much older than uh some of those guys five six years so um did so i take it they didn't send you to core school or did they no because uh i was already paramedic i was able to kind of go around going through core school but i had to go through i had to go into field med in order to get my 8404 okay so you go to field med um i i never really looked at field med as a anything really medicine as much as it was hey here's how the marine corps works did you kind of find it the same way mostly yeah i did learn and and i i'll tell people i did learn a lot from field med because I came up in the era of pre-hospital medicine where it was all about your ABCs for everything. So for trauma, it was still airway breathing circulation and through EMT and, and paramedic tourniquets were like at the bottom, like, you know, you put on a tourniquet as a last resort. I go to field med and they're like, no, you're putting a tourniquet on first. And I'm like that, you know, it seemed counterintuitive at the time, but when I learned, I was like, all right, I guess we're putting tourniquets on first. And now pre-hospital medicine or civilian medicine has finally caught up to that. But that's what I was learning back. Because I went through field med in 06. Okay. That's what they were doing well back then. Okay. Yeah, I went uh, in 05 and they were really pushing that with um, stuff that they had learned from Black Hawk Down was their, was their method of thinking. Right. Some of those guys died right. because they, we followed ABC, not stop the bleeding first so when you yeah, p march and all that yeah when you finally got back to your home you or your home how was the transition back to working at a fire department under a different set of rules after everything you learned at field med not um not a whole lot had changed uh pre-hospital you know we still deal with a lot of the medical the side of it really hadn't changed too much and stuff but um more along in in dealing with sick people and stuff you see a lot more of that in out here in the streets than you would in the military and stuff like that uh, a lot of the skills I learned um, at field med, as far as trauma goes, uh, like I, I felt I knew, you know, trauma going into field med. And then whenever I went to field med, you know, I, I learned a lot and I apply more of that. What I learned there and, and through a T triple C into what I do out here in the streets. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, um, 
Where, what was your first unit? Was it 123? Or did you go straight to a Marine Corps unit? Uh, not at first. Um, I After I left Field Med, uh, I moved here to Oklahoma. I'm originally from North Carolina. So I, uh, I moved to Oklahoma. Um, the reserve high Mars battery here out of OKC was getting ready to deploy. So I jumped on their deployment. Uh, it was Fox Battery 214 is who I deployed with. And I think we left July of 07 and got back February of 08. Okay. So you, that was my first actual greenside unit. So let's talk about that. You are a EMT paramedic who has gone out and done this stuff in the streets. You join the Navy, you go to field med, you get some new info, and you volunteer to go overseas. How was your workups? Uh, it was long, I guess. Um, the issues with reserve corpsmen with greenside units i don't know if they're ever going to fix that or if they've ever fixed that um we sat at me and two other corpsmen we sat down at at, at camp lejeune whenever we whenever they brought us from reserve over to active duty for like two weeks you know we did two days worth of medical and admins stuff and then for the two weeks after that it was just all you know, we're waiting to hear back from the battery to get your orders cut and all that other stuff. And um, once we actually got back here and started training, um, I think back then the big push was the convoy stuff. So we did a lot of convoy training. Um, we went to uh, 29 Palms for, uh, I think back then it was a, a Mojave Viper. That was a big check in the box for, for us. Yeah. So we did that. Um then we had like our final field training exercise down here at Fort Sill because it's, you know, it's an artillery base for both branches and stuff. So all the, a lot of the artillery training comes out of there. So we did a lot of our stuff down there. Um, plus HIMARS was new to the Marine Corps at the time. We, we were the first operational HIMARS battery in, in the Marine Corps. Oh, wow. To deploy with them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. We were, or, 214, as far from what I can remember, was the first uh, operational high Mars battery in the Marine Corps. And I think who replaced us? I want to say either 311 or 511 replaced us, but they were the first active duty um, regiments and, and battalions to get high Mars and stuff. So, so what is high Mars? Uh, high Mars was a stand for highly mobile artillery rocket system. It's a Scaled down version of the Army's MLRS. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, instead of it being the big track vehicle, it's like a smaller, it uses the Army's, uh, I don't know what they call it. It kind of looks like a smaller seven ton, but it's not. It's, oh, okay. um, it only carries one, one pod on, on the back or, or one six pack on the back of it. And that's what we had back then. So instead of the Army, because Army also had. HIMARS too, but their MLRS could shoot two six packs. HIMARS can only shoot a single six pack um, and all that stuff. So we, we were the first ones to deploy with it, first ones to shoot them in combat uh, and all that stuff. So nice. So did you guys get spun up on uh, medicine while you were doing your workups? Were you like, we, into sick call and all that? 
We did not. That was I, I was pretty lost in the sauce then. Um, I was only a, a third class at the time, so we never got to do um, any of the stab labs or anything like that. Um, we only deployed with only three corpsmen for a whole battery. Uh, we deployed as an asset to, which I don't know if any of this is like OPSEC or whatever, but we deployed as an asset to uh, 2MEF at the time. So we, we were, we, we fell directly under them and not part of an RCT or a MU or anything else like that. Oh, okay. We deployed under 2MEF. Um, the corpsmen, we were, we fell under 2MEF, but we never had anything to do with it. Well, like I finally found their aid station at Camp Fallujah when we finally went over there and they're like, Oh, here's our corpsman that we've been trying to figure out where you guys were from the last, however, how, however months. And I'm like, well, here we are. So we're like, okay, we can bring, you know, this is where we can bring every one for sick call. But um, for the most part, I handled sick call by myself because I had a whole platoon under me. I handled sick call on my own. And if anything I couldn't handle, I would take to the aid station. And that was it. We, I never had a whole lot of problems. So, Right on. So uh, did you guys do the convoy ops or the high Mars stuff while you were in Fallujah? We did mostly uh, high Mars. We convoyed from time to time, but we were there as an, as an artillery asset only. Um, so you, you guys were there when, because um, I left there in, oh God, March of 2007. So it was, you guys were kind of there for the awakening, what they call, or that's what they called it, was when some of the uh, local militias started working with us more. And I don't want to say things calmed yes. down to nothing, but got fairly, yes. fairly calm. So how was your time over there overall? It wasn't bad. Um, we we were on station July of 07. That's when we got there. We uh, started off at Al-Assad, and then they sent, they split the battery in half. One platoon went further downrange. The other half stayed at Al-Assad. I, I got to go downrange. Um, and I remember things were pretty kinetic at the time, like a lot of casualties were coming into all the bases and stuff. And all of that seemed to start slowing down as the summer went on. And then I think September was the start of Ramadan. And after that, it slowed down. It got quiet after that. Yeah. And we're talking September of 07. And then we didn't do we didn't do anything. We never heard of anything happening after that from the time we left until the time we went back. So the battery who replaced us was an active duty battery and they never got to do anything their entire deployment. And I think they might've gotten replaced by another active duty battery. But anyway, after that deployment, they started sending everything back to Afghanistan. And that's when things picked up in Afghanistan again was about 09, 2010. So after we left, things were quiet and they were starting to turn over. Um, I kind of re, re, remember some of that happening. So when you guys got back, um, how was your return to civilization? Now that you've been gone doing the, uh, the going to war thing, now you're coming back home to Oklahoma. How was your return back? Uh, well, I was glad to be back. 
Um, I mean, I think that was kind of at the height of support the troops and stuff like that. Um, I uh, went back to work. Um, I, it was actually at that point, because I got out of, I dropped to the IRR in, I think, early 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I got a little, the uh, service life kind of took a toll on me a bit. So I needed a break, uh, got out or dropped, dropped an IRR package in like 09. And then 2010 is whenever I, I came back in and started drilling in San Antonio. So right on. that's how that went. But, um, you know, it, it seemed, you know, different that you've actually deployed and then you're coming back and you're doing just the usual drill, you know, kind of routine and stuff. And you're like, well, we've deployed, we've, you know, you know, we've done this. Why are we doing things, you know, this certain way and stuff? Are we deploying again? If, if so, let's kind of get into that op tempo again. But if we're not, then what are we doing here? You know, that's kind of the on the mindset that I had at the time. Now, how was, so after that, I got it. Huh? Oh, I was going to ask you how it was for uh, your civilian job when you came back. Everything was good. Um, just getting back into what I knew, what I kind of felt comfortable doing. Um, work. Um, I bonded with a few other, you know, guys who were vets with my jobs and stuff like that. Um, which I think that's kind of natural when you come back from a deployment. You kind of, you know, bond with guys who shared your same experience and stuff like that but for the most part it was good did you did you have anyone um from your deployment that worked in like the police or fire department with you actually i did yeah yeah actually i did there were a few guys who were cops um a couple guys uh joined the fire department after me uh but all of us still keep in touch and, and stuff like that. But there were a few guys who were already like police officers and stuff like that with who I deployed with. So what was the reason or what was the catalyst to get you to get out of the IRR and back into reserve status? I, um, well, our CEO for, for, Ox battery. He called me one day. He was like, "Hey, Doc, I'm, I'm, I'm a PCS, and and he was like, you know, I'm trying to get everyone from the deployment back together and stuff like that. So he was like, "Yeah, hey, just come up or whatever. If you want to wear camis, fine. If not, whatever." So um, I, I I put my camis on and went to the uh, reserve center. Well, come to find out, this was all a setup. They had I was getting a uh, a, a NAM for what I did on my my deployment. So I was, you know, that, that was kind of the first spark that wanted me to get back in, but I didn't want to go back to Foxbury. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to uh, try to become a SARC. So I looked at, um, either drilling in San Antonio or Albuquerque, because both of those were the, were the same distance away. So, so how did that's you, what kind of got me back? how did you find out about the recon Gorman thing? I actually, it was at Field Med. The uh, command master chief over Field Med at the time was a SARC. 
our senior chief, which I forget all all the titles at the time, but he was a senior chief. He was a SART. And our class advisor, he wasn't a SART, but he had spent a lot of time with a reconnaissance unit. So they were all kind of pushing that. Well, they were having a screener um, at Field Med at the time, or they were planning on having a screener at Field Med at the time. And I really felt that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know if I had to go active duty. I didn't know if there was a, a reserve component of it, but that always stuck out in my head after that. Once I, I did my research and figured out what, you know, Sarks actually did and felt like, oh yeah, I can do that. So I uh, got back in, found out about 4th Reconnaissance Battalion, found out about, you know, got H&S and Charlie down in San Antonio and then whoever was in Albuquerque and stuff. And both of those are the same distance. So I opted to go to San Antonio because it's, you know, I guess I don't have to deal with snow <laughs> down there and cold or whatever. So uh, you, you missed this year. There was a decent amount of snow. Yeah, and I, I heard y'all got hit. But I heard y'all get you guys that hit bad this year. So uh, I personally, I didn't think it was that bad. People who've lived here all their life thought the world was ending and they needed to get some holy water or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> so you get down here, what, in 2010? Um, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm still over there helping, I think. It was either me solo or Tyler was still there. Um, Tyler, yeah. Was setting up, the, or Tyler had set up the program. He was getting ready to PCS to mm-hmm. his next adventure. Yep. And I was still kind of there. Right. What was you? Yeah. What were you expecting to happen when you got there? I had no idea what I was, uh, what to expect. Um, I didn't really know a whole lot about the screening process or 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 anything else like that. So um, at that point, I was just glad to be on the team, so to speak. You know, just to be down there and and having a shot to actually do it and having a, a shot to actually get you know into the pipeline and stuff so i was like i'll do i'll verify you know you know medical records i'll do all this you know work work, work my way up from the bottom in order to have a shot so right on so um did you i'm trying to remember did you end up going with 123 on their deployment to afghanistan no no those guys had just left uh, whenever I showed up. So okay. I missed out on that one. So yeah. did you ever screen while you were over there? Did you ever end up doing the, yeah, I, screen? I, I screened a couple of times, but, um, yeah, I screened a couple of times, but the last time I did, they actually were going to put in a package and that's when sequestration hit. And they uh, can't me and I think one other guy's package because of funding. And they um, actually, I kind of forgot what happened, but that was what I was told that funding wasn't going to wasn't going to be there anymore. So that is one of the hardest things for um, the reserve uh, recon community is. Right. They need Sarks. They need special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen. They have a bunch of guys like you who are like, I want to do it. You yeah. s- pass a screener, which is a bitch, because I really yeah. think people don't expect the swim to be as hard as it is or some of the other stuff that it, they do. 
it was bad for me. Like, uh, I went down there and screened before I even joined or whatever. Um, I went down there with the Tyler, uh, God, it was probably a month or two before I actually got back in. I, I wasn't even, I was in the IRR field. So we went down there and we, and I swam in camis and it kicked my butt. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it was so bad that I, I didn't even finish the screener and he was like look man you know I, I appreciate you coming down here and you show that you got a whole lot of heart but you know here you know do these workouts and whatever else and i did it like whatever he you know whatever he gave me is what i ended up doing um i hired a swim coach um i started swimming every morning before work i would get up i would get up uh 4 30 in the morning drive to the north side of the city because that pool was open at 5 a.m. and swim for an hour before work and then go to work. Oh, damn. Uh, I did that for probably two years and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I did that for a, a long time. As far as like everything else, my other PT, um, the uh, run, push-ups, pull-ups, I never had any issues with, with that. It was just um, getting my swim time down Yeah, was the issue. And I, and I just barely squeaked by on, on, on the last time i did it but yeah and where i was going with that was that um a lot of people they get past that screener which like i said was a bitch but then the mm -hmm. reserve the navy reserves like hey you want to go to brc dive jump mm -hmm. 18 delta dmt and wait you want right. us to pay for it <laughs> oh. On a on a good on a good time, it's going to be eighteen months. They're like, um, yeah, right, yeah. Get yeah, the Marine yeah. Corps to pay for it, and the Marine Corps is like, we can't pay mm -hmm. for this. So, yeah. how long? When I left the Navy in two thousand eleven, June of twenty eleven. Where? Okay. How much longer did you stay at Fourth Recon before you changed out? I I stayed there until twenty fifteen because I deployed. And again, in the 2015. So, but at that time, you know, once I got in better sh shape, they moved me out of H&S and I was with Charlie. So I was out there in the field doing everything that Charlie does. And I was having a blast, you know, doing all that stuff. So, you know, kept staying in shape and, and all of, all of that. Um, but yeah, I got, I, uh, I deployed in, in 2015 and then whenever i came back that's whenever i went to a 123 it was after that okay so when um i'm jumping back and forth a little bit so as your time doing the navy reserves are you taking any of the stuff that you're able to do or that you're learning on the navy side back to the civilian world yes um a lot a lot of the sick call stuff um I, I was able to carry back over to the streets, you know, for the most part, being a street paramedic or street EMT, everybody's going to end up at the hospital anyway. You know, that's going to be the end game for every for every person we meet. But, you know, as being a corpsman, our job is to keep as many as many marines behind as many guns for as long as possible so we have the ability to be like all right hey you're fine 
you know, you know, take this Motrin or this antibiotic or whatever, and you know, come talk to me if it gets worse. I don't have that luxury out here in the streets. So everyone's going to end up at the hospital anyway. Now, civilian EMS is slowly starting to move towards that. With uh, they, they call it community-based uh, paramedicine, where you're actually functioning as maybe an IDC or something along those lines, where you're able to not transport someone to the hospital if they're not critical if it's something where they just need follow-up with a, a primary uh a community-based you know paramedic can kind of make that call and do the follow-up and stuff like that instead of just taking someone to the hospital because they're sick and they're out of meds and if they only had their meds they you know be okay so right on so does uh, do you think that this is gonna... that's that's slowly starting to come I was going to say, do you think that this is going to accelerate uh, due to COVID with all the hospital bed spaces uh, being stretched thin right now? I believe so. Um, here, I really don't know, and I really don't want to speak on what my employers are right. doing right now. But other places, that's definitely on the move is implementing that community-based uh, paramedicine to, to, to where you've got people who are sick at home and they need follow up and stuff like that to keep them out of from going to the hospital so that makes um, sense. i i'm pretty sure it's gonna i'm pretty sure it's gonna start making its way down here at some point yeah probably gonna end up seeing something similar to that like nationwide pretty soon mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so let's go back to your deployment so did you deploy with fourth recon in 15 no. or did you go with someone else well it, they owned that deployment I guess, but it was only me and one other corpsman from 4th Reconnaissance who deployed. It, 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 I guess it was an IA deployment, I guess, but I guess 4th Recon had some oversight on it at, in some way, because that's how I found out about it, like before everybody else did was because of that, because of where I was at the time. So, so in that deployment, did you... Again, this this so this is completely out of my knowledge. Did you go back to Iraq or did you go to Afghanistan this time? I went to Jordan. Okay, okay. So you, were, I think I know the one that you were talking about then. The yeah, the mute. I think. Yeah. So how was that? Now you're in a non-combat area, doing a deployment. Was that? Well, I was in Jordan, right on the hills of Benghazi. So that oh. was what was on the forefront of everybody's mind was Benghazi and the bunch of uh, the whole thing of what is the green on that everybody was having where the uh, trainees were killing all the oh, that's right. and st yeah. stuff like that. I was on the heels of that too. I was on the heels of Benghazi and I was on the heels of the uh, green on blue stuff. And so as you're in Jordan, what was that deployment like overall? It was pretty chill. Um, one thing I did notice was the whole active duty versus reserve. That drama really escalated more so than what I noticed back in 07, whenever I deployed. Like, nobody cared if you were guard or reserve or whatever else. At least that was my experience. But fast forward to 2015, and it's like, oh, you guys are reservists and stuff like that. I wish everybody I deployed with was prior active or had done multiple deployments and stuff, but they still carry that, you know, that 
stigma being reservist. So um, that was one thing I noticed um, during the train up, you know, they kind of had you scared of the whole get snatched up by ISIS because that was the other thing that was going on. ISIS was big in Syria, Jihadi John and stuff like that, snatching up contractors and all that. That was on the forefront of everybody's mind as well. So you're worried about all of that. You're worried about getting snatched up. You're we're worried about, you know, the guys you're training, turning on you and getting into a Benghazi incident and stuff like that. But aside from that, it was chill. You know, it was actually good to be amongst the people that we were actually training um, and kind of getting down on their level, I guess, and, and getting fully immersed in their culture there in Jordan and stuff. You know, once you got past all that stuff, it was cool. You know, got to experience another country. So um, not like a combat deployment, but so were you living with them or did, were you guys separate in terms of like uh, living facilities? No, we were on a, uh, a joint base in Jordan. So um, the base we trained at wasn't too far away. They had plans. Excuse me. At some point, the base that, that we we trained the Jordanians that they had started to build accommodations for us but we weren't going to be there to see that you know that was going to be up to whoever comes after us and after them if they're going to actually stay there or not but that was the the idea for us to be fully integrated with them or whatever we just you know were there a little too early to see that happen okay i get what you're saying on that so now you guys um spend what probably six months over there doing your training Yep. So when you got back, you said you went to 123. Right. So how was that transition going back to just a, being a straight grunt corpsman? The weirdest thing about that was going to a unit where nobody's deployed hardly, uh, except for the staff NCOs and stuff like that. Really? You know, all the junior guys. Yeah, all the junior guys. Because I don't think... Anybody who was, well, again, with the exception of the staff, a lot of the junior guys hadn't deployed. All the corpsmen under me hadn't had never deployed. Um, most of them had done Afghanistan, or the ones who had deployed had done Afghan. There weren't many OIF vets there. Like it was kind of weird, you know. I felt like a, a dinosaur, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I was one of the few. You know, one of the few guys that still had a Iraqi campaign, you know, medal and stuff like that. So, man, um, that's one of the big things I noticed. Just the, I guess, in that five years since 123 had gone to Afghan, to whenever I I I showed up in 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 2015, you know, that much had left. Um, it was crazy. That's nuts. So, how long were you over yeah. at 123? So you, it was that I was there for, yeah, that, that was about the time I got out. I was there for about a year. Uh, the only thing we did that was exciting. We did, we did, we did a ball tops. So they sent us to, uh, the Baltic for this big NATO exercise. They, um, put us with a, a with an active duty track unit out of Campbell. Um, that they sent us with a platoon of them and then they put us aboard a ship and we just floated around the Baltic for 
two and a half, you know, three weeks or so. So did they make you ride the tracks in? Yeah. Yeah. What was that experience like? Just I mean, as you're saying this, I'm popping in my head about what happened about ooh, maybe a year, year and a half ago with uh, the Marines out at Camp Pendleton. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I'd heard all the horror stories about tracks. Um, once upon a time, I used to get very seasick, so I was thinking about that as well. So, um, they are kind of big and scary, and you really wonder who designs such a thing because it's like you got this big metal box, and the uh, diesel exhaust exhausts right in the troop compartment. And like, if it sinks, you know, that's it. You know, if it sinks, you've got, you got no shot. Um, but I guess for me, it, it wasn't quite that bad floating around in the tracks. Um, like anything else in the military, it sucks. You just, you, you learn how to deal with it, but it wasn't as miserable of an experience as, as I was expecting. So, um, when the floats out to sea suck from when, whenever you splash, you know, from shore going out to the sh- sh- ship that could take up to two hours. Um, and all that stuff and yeah and you can't see anything if you're sitting in the very back of the of the troop compartment you can't see nothing i mean it's pitch black and all you can do is just feel yourself rocking and like anything else the seats are small and you know it's just yeah i did i did a little it is what it is i did a little bit of track time our parent unit when i was in iraq um was a track unit we were in humvees but Mm -hmm. we had to do uh a mission into the city of Fallujah. I'll tell you, I think I would have mm-hmm. rather walked into Fallujah than be yes. <laughs> like you, you're like, okay, there's no windows. There's no way out except for the back door. Yeah. I know yeah. how IEDs work, but yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. So what was your final catalyst for getting out of the, uh, out of the military? I, for me, it was, you know, time to go. Um, I, you know, I never really enlisted with the idea that I was going to see 20 years as far as a retirement goes, but the longer I stayed in, um, and the more I did the math on it, because I, I started to get out when they did the, uh, what is, what's it called? The, uh, the blended retirement system. And I didn't have enough points to stay under the old system so i was under the new system and once i actually sat down and did the math on what my retirement was going to be you know i was like i you know it it seemed a lot more work for what i was going to get out of retirement and all that stuff so it was at at that point i was like well i know i've probably been in a little bit too long but it's you know it's you know time to go and unfortunately, it came when they announced the achieved results, and I made the list. And you know, kind of bad timing, but it, it is what it is. Well, the fact that you made it is an accomplishment in itself. So that's a good thing. Yep. Um, yep. So let's go into you a little bit because I know we talk on uh, Instagram and Facebook sometimes. You. F- mm-hmm. Do you actually fly or are you just a simulator guy? No, I fly. I fly. I got my private pilot in March of this year. What made you get into that? 
I've wanted to do, I've wanted to fly since I was a small kid. It was one of those things that I felt was out of my grasp, that it was too expensive or whatever else. Um, actually, so I was going, I re-enlisted, I think tw- after I got back from, from Jordan, I think, or maybe it was around one of my times I was actually looking in, into the Army's flight or the Army's warrant officer program. I actually talked to the uh, recruiter for the Oklahoma National Guard and spoke with them, but they were like, man, we're 110% man, like, you know, good luck. So anyway, that was one thing I started to look at. But when the pandemic hit, I saw that a lot of online flight schools were offering free ground school. So I I asked a buddy who's a pilot, hey, man, is this actually – legit or what's the deal he was like no no it's for real he was like it's just you know you you might have questions when it's all over with so you you know you know do a whole lot of self-study well i took the class i passed ground school took the uh written and then august or september of of last year was when i actually started flying so flew all last fall um and then got my private in march of this year so what was that like going through flight school? Because, I mean, I know a little bit about flying, and I know you guys are going up in, like, smaller Cessna, like, 187. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. with everything that was going on with the pandemic, you got your instructor on, the, on one side of you. Are you. How are you guys operating in that environment following the restrictions? Oh, we're masked up and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. Um, you know, we're masked. Um, I don't think the pandemic, on the pandemic, the pandemic hit aviation quite that hard. Um, it hit the airlines pretty bad. So they were having all the layoffs and stuff. But what that happened, what I think happened was you had a lot of airline pilots who were wanting to go back and teach because a lot of airline pilots are CFIs anyway. Oh, so okay. there's a whole bunch of you know pilots out there you know trying to make ends meet and stuff like that so um it's really not that you know big of a deal um you know you fly two three times a week uh up until you solo and and all that stuff but yeah it's not it it wasn't that big of a deal so i I got to ask, what was uh, what was the first time like when you pulled back on the yoke and got the wheels off the ground with no one else in the plane? <laughs> the Whenever I did my first solo and I was actually airborne, I was like, well, I'm going to have to do it now because he's not here to bail me out and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm, that's when it hit. That's when it hit once I finally took off. And because all he does is have you do a few patterns. That's when it hits. That first pattern is like, I'm really doing this. And then when you actually land, pull the flaps up and take off again, it's it's like all better after that. And uh, the, the next time it hit, I think it was a few lessons after that, uh, or, or my next solo flight after that, he told me to go off and fly like, 20 miles southeast over in, into the practice area. That's when it, it hit again. Now I'm leaving the airport, the comfort of the airport. Now I'm out here in BFE, Oklahoma. 
and I have to find, you know, I have to go out here and practice all of, you know, my maneuvers all by myself without him watching, without him, you know, bailing me out. And then on top of that, I have to find out how to get back. So <laughs> that was about the second, you know, time it, it hit. And then the, the last time, um, was whenever I had to do my cross country solos. That was also big deal because you've got to fly to airports over that are 50 miles apart and stuff, at least 50 nautical miles apart. And you do all your planning, you know, your flight instructor, he goes over your, your navigation log and your charts and all that, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, I guess I have to go figure out how I'm going to get to wherever, wherever it is I'm going and stuff. So, but after that first cross country solo, after you get to your first spot, it, it, it's all good after that. So is it true what they say? Uh, flying is easy. Landing is hard. Yes. Yes. And the thing when I tell people about landing, it's like a, uh, a golf swing. Once you learn how to do it, you're always trying to get better at it. You're always trying to improve your golf swing. You're always trying to improve your landing. So, um, yeah. So let's uh, jump into Afghanistan. I know, um, like you said, you didn't actually deploy there, but I know you, you are big on the veteran community. How? Right. Let's go back to 2015. Well, you were deployed in Jordan. Would you have ever thought that what happened was going to happen? I don't know. Well, I remember when we pulled out of Iraq and ISIS was going through Iraq. I remember that very vividly because that was right, or I was in Jordan about a year or so after that happened. Um, and I imagine what a lot of guys felt now is how I felt back when that happened is that, you know, you spent all this time for this, this energy and all for what, you know, the country gets rolled over in a matter of a couple of a couple of weeks but we, we actually i guess managed to salvage the situation in iraq with isis and stuff but afghanistan i just a country that big you know i i you know it was hard to imagine a group taking over that fast in such a short amount of time yeah, I mean, we're, we won't go, you know, political or, you know, or anything. But, but from what you saw on the TV, I do have to ask, as someone who spent years in the military with the Marines, uh, I don't know how much uh, medical planning or intel you had to do. I'm assuming you did some with Jordan. And knowing how some of those sources work, did you buy when they said they had no idea that this was going to happen as fast as it did? Because yeah, it's like, you know, we know how we know how planning works. You know, we know that there's intel, you know, you know that. You know, we have information from various source, sources. The good thing about Jordan was I sat in on like all that stuff, you know, I sat in on all those briefs and things like that. So you kind of know what's going on. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, it's like, how would you not know, or how would you not know the capability of the troops you're training or, or, or the people who you're, you know, you're leaving stuff to and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't want to like bash on the guys we trained or, or anything like that, but you know, we all kind of, we all 
know what the capabilities of the guys who are training are and how they're probably going to perform if they don't have us, you know, backing them and stuff. But it, it just seemed grossly irresponsible just to completely pull out. Um, and that's it. Yeah. You I know? mean, I, I, my heart goes out to the guys who served over there. I mean, like you said, I remember mm -hmm. being in Iraq in 06, 07 at Camp Fallujah, then watching ISIS roll through Fallujah. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. felt the same way that they yep. did. Yep. I felt the exact same way. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what would you tell guys right now who are bummed out? Well, I don't know if it's any words of encouragement, but, you know, how I feel about it is, you know, I know that, you know, I look back on, on my time in, I don't regret any of it. Um, you know, I, I think about all the, all the positives and, and and stuff like that. I mean, it's you. Know, I don't know. You know, it's kind of hard to, I guess, put in to words. But you know, don't dwell on the bad stuff. You know, I, I don't want to feel like you know my time was wasted over there. You know, you sacrifice so much to have all, you know, everything that you worked hard for just gone in, you know, a matter of any time. And you feel like what's, you know, was it all worth it and stuff. But, um, you know, I, I guess I look back at the job I did, we did our job, you know, and, and that's it. You know, that's really all there is, I think, if any of that makes sense no it absolutely it absolutely does and i i'm gonna guess again you being a firefighter you you guys are pretty close to the police that there's many afghan war vets in where you're at in terms yep. of serv yep. doing oh, service yeah. now oh yeah so yep. um let's talk about the last couple of years the crazy uh 2020s so yep. how has it been for you being so closely involved with the pandemic i mean not saying that you're doing like you're at the hospital doing pandemic work, but how has life changed for you through, through this pandemic as a firefighter? Well, with, with our jobs, a lot of how we do business day to day changed. Um, everything from how we interacted with each other at work, you know, changed for a bit, you know, we had to stay masked up at the station. Um, now we wear a mask on every calls, you know, as a matter of fact, I was working a few days ago and me and a guy were talking about it, but it seemed like two years ago, the worst thing we had to worry about was the TB and bed bugs. Now it's, you know, COVID and I never really wore the times I wore a N95 mask on a call were very few and far between you run the occasional, you know, patient with MRSA or VRE or something like that, or, uh, what is it at the tip of my tongue um, or, or a meningitis, you know, you run those patients. Those are very few and far between. And you had to go figure out where your N95 is at, go put it on and all that. But now it's every day. It's every call we go on, you know, you're wearing a, you're wearing an 
N95 or some, some type of, you know, mast to filter out all the stuff. Um, and that's, you know, I don't, I don't really see us ever going back from, from that in terms of a pre-hospital and stuff with, with the vaccines and stood up like that, you know, life at the station's kind of gone back to normal in some respects. Um, but that was kind of the biggest, you know, change for us out in, in, in this, you know, line of work was interactions at work, interactions with the public. Yeah. I, I know in the early days of the pandemic, just scrolling through the Instagram feed, um, I saw a couple EMT, firefighter, whatever, uh, paramedic posts where these guys, I think they were out in the West Coast. They were dressed in like bunny suits, you know, like almost the C- yep. almost the full body CDC suits running calls. My yep. little brother's a firefighter. I always get this backwards, firefighter or paramedic uh, out in California, out in the Inland Empire. And I know that they were doing some specialty special stuff as far as like uh, sleeping arrangements for the station and all that. Did you, yep. did you guys get hit hard out there? Uh, Oklahoma got hit hard. Um, the place where I work, we got hit pretty hard too. I don't want to go into too many details about that, but um, we, we got hit hard too. Uh, but once, and and that came towards whenever we got the vaccine and and all that. So there was a big push to get all this vaccinated. So um, after that, things got a whole lot better at work. Oh, that's good. Now you're you're in yep. Oklahoma still, right? Yep. So how is life returning back to normal up there? Um, we never did much. Well, we did do lockdowns at first, but as conservative as Oklahoma is, um, they weren't really about any of that. Um, I live way out in the country, so, um, my day-to-day life, you know, never changed, you know, animals still have to get fed. You still gotta go to the feed store and stuff like that. And, uh, for a couple of months, that was a bit different, you know, going to the feed store to get the feed or, you know, going to the grocery store and all that stuff. Um, you know, that changed for a bit. Now things have gotten back to normal and stuff. And and now with the second wave, I really don't know. Cause I, I don't really pay much attention to the news anymore. Um, you know, I'm kind of waiting to see how, how things are going to go here as far as the Delta variant and stuff like that. So no, that makes total sense. So um, speaking of where you live, are you doing, are you trying to do like ranching or is it just more like home gardening with some chickens? I've seen your posts and I get a little confused on how, (laughs) how much land you're actually living on and what you're trying to do with it. Well, I'm on 10 acres out here. Um, for about the first year, I didn't really do a whole lot. I was just cutting grass. That's what I, I did for about the first year that, that I was out here. Um, I bought some horses, or I bought a horse and ended up with two others after that. Um, and then I got some chickens, and they say chickens are kind of the gateway drug to uh, 
until to a livestock and i i 100 agree with that like they're the easiest thing to raise i haven't had to buy eggs in probably two years now oh wow so yeah i haven't had to buy eggs um a couple times a year i'll raise a batch of chickens only for meat so i haven't had to buy chicken for a couple years um last year i bought cattle so i've got a few heads of, of cattle out back and um, I've got one steer that I'm going to butcher here come this fall. Um, so I'll have meat. And that's just kind of where I am right now. So hopefully my herd will grow. I, I had a bull out there on him uh, earlier this year. So so you've gotten hopefully all I'll, I'll have some. Yeah. Gradually I'm going all in, but yeah. So your cows, are you. Um solely going to use them for meat or are you going to do you have uh what is it dairy cows yeah all of mine are beef cattle oh okay okay that's crazy man i didn't realize 10 acres you can do th three or four cows i've got i've got five right now i've got four heifers and a steer oh wow and and, th and three horses um i've got a pond out back so when everything's good, when the grass is growing and the pond's full, it's very maintenance-free. Oh, There's wow. not much I can do. Yeah. I probably got room for a few more head, which I'm toying around with the idea of, of, of getting more cattle. But if, if, if I actually have calves out of these, I'm just going to wait and see. Um, so what about... Uh, how, how they do after that. But What about uh, goats or sheep or any of the other... Uh... Livestock? Or are you saying solely to cattle? I've thought about goats and sheep. I've thought about hogs. Um, the biggest thing with goats and sheep for right now is containment. Um, I don't have a good way of keeping them fenced just yet. So once I kind of get that figured out, I'll go that route. Um, and then the same thing with hogs is containment. So, so now... Are you doing this um, to be self-sustaining or are you doing this because you did the chickens and now you just want to start uh, being the rancher farmer guy? It started off as self-sustainment, but for me, I'm the only person out here or who lives here. So I've got, you know, I'm going to have, you know, more meat than what I can eat, you know, myself. So you know, eventually I might get into the s s selling meat and, um, excuse me, all that stuff. But for right now, it starts off, it starts off as me, which is what I've, I've learned from others. It says, always start with trying to feed yourself and see if that will progress into, you know, being, um, a source for others. So if, um, if veterans want to get into this type of thing of, growing your own food and um, raising your own livestock. What would you Where would you tell them to start? I know you said chickens were the gateway drug. Um, well, as far as resources, um, I'm going to do a bit of a plug here. Uh, there's a group that I belong to called the Jinx McCain Horsemanship Program um, through the Semper Fi Fund. I don't know if you're familiar with the Semper oh, yeah. Fi Fund. Okay. The Jinx McCain Horsemanship Program, I've been with them for the last oh, couple years or whatever. Um, they're a good source of trying to get in, 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 into that community. Um, 
in as far as even getting pointed into the right directions the uh the ag department and the usda does have some sources out there for vets i really haven't quite gotten into that but for me from where i started i just i bought this property and i think you just naturally just kind of you know certain things happen it's like okay well i've got enough room here to grow chickens or do some gardening or whatever so you saw you know you sit on youtube at night and you're looking at how to raise you know chickens or how to do gardening and stuff like that and then that you mean you mean crack tube yeah because youtube youtube's like crack yeah yeah (laughs) so that's how it got started you know with me um and then the same thing with cattle, you know, I've got, you know, I've got actually seven acres of pasture, seven, eight acres of, of actual pasture. And my actual yard is like two acres. Um, so it was, it, for me, it was like, I'm tired of cutting grass. So why don't I get some animals out here to turn grass into meat? So that's, you know, that's kind of your natural progression. I wouldn't suggest just, you know, jumping in head first with everything all at once, but it, it eventually becomes a natural evolution of going from chickens or gardening to cattle and things like that, especially if your if your property is set up, you know, to handle that. Yeah. So were you always a rural guy or were you a city guy to begin with? I grew up in the burbs. I, I grew up in the suburbs. So this was my first exposure to to country life aside from you know hanging out with you know family because all my family is from the countries so going out to see them for like a day is is nothing compared to actually being out here all the time so right on so did you does this kind of like a weird question but does this help you being out there just kind of back in nature being out in the country Mm -hmm. does it does it yep. help your head and, and all of that? One hundred percent. It helps to put a whole lot in in perspective. Um, you, you know, you spend a day fixing fence or chasing cattle or, or doing whatever, and it's 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 not easy work. You know, it's very physical work. You know, you spend a day doing that or, you know, and, 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 you know, just for example, you know, um, common problem I have from time to time are the cattle getting out. One day my colt, um, he got out from under my fence. And next thing I know, I'm having to hang barbed wire. I'm having to stretch barbed wire. Never done that before. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know I needed to know anything about it until my horse gets out. Now I'm having to hang. Now I'm having to stretch barbed wire. And I spent a whole day doing that. And then, you know, you, you know, you're done. You're hot. You're sweaty. You come in, you come home and you sit on Facebook and you see, see what people are talking about. And you're like, really? Is this what's going on right now? Is this what's, you know, is this what's really important right now is what everyone's complaining about, stuff like that. So, the more I spend time out here, the more I, you know, I see what's important to me um, and what I don't, I guess what I don't really 
of, 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 of focus on and stuff like that. It's what like everyone is griping about and things like that. Yeah, I'm I'm dying to get my first piece of land. I, I'm I'm looking right now. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have said Oklahoma. By the way, go look up there. Mm-hmm. So we all know yep. Texas is super vet friendly. How is Oklahoma for someone who would consider moving up there and getting some land? Oklahoma is is too. Oklahoma is super vet, vet friendly. Um, yeah, it's it's good here. It's good here. I think you're the only person I know right off the top of my head who lives there. So it worked out good for me being able to ask you. So yeah, yeah. Um, are you uh, kind of off subject? Are you going to butcher your own cow or are you going to take it somewhere and have it finished? And No, I'm going to, I'm going to take them somewhere. I don't know very much about the butchering process with the cattle. Um, I believe when the meat has to age for a certain uh, uh, amount of time, so I'll probably just it, end up taking them somewhere and and have them him, him butchered there. But I've I've done I do all of my own chickens. I, I butcher all of them. Um, I've done sheep. I've done hogs. Uh, those are are easy. You know the thing about cattle is I just don't have anything set up here to handle that, you know, just yet. So that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. So uh, one of the last questions I'm going to ask you is, are you a hunter as well? Or do you just do? Yes. Okay. How is the hunting up there? Yep. It's great. Hunting up here is, is great. Um, even if you hunt public, there's still a lot of deer out here as far as public goes. Uh, Deer is what we have a whole lot of up here. Um, they do have elk, but you have to draw for elk. Um, same thing with antelope, too. You got to draw for antelope. Um, but deer, hogs are twenty-four seven. If you see one, please, you know, kill it. Is what is how Oklahoma is. Um, but yeah, it's good. We've got big deer up here, so I may have to come visit you one of these hunting seasons and uh, check it out. Yep. All right, man. So the last yep. thing I'm going to ask you is, what? How do you feel now that you're done and that you've did your service? You're back to your civilian life. Do you have any suggestions for people who are not doing well right now? Uh. you to me you've got to find a center of you, you know something you know that your you know your life kind of revolves around or something to focus your your energy into you know for me it's been this property and now aviation you know those are the two big things that are kind of that are kind of center in my life and, and and they keep me busy they keep me extremely busy um so i mean that's it probably isn't on the best advice but that's what's helped me is getting involved in in these you know two things that have you know you know kept me busy have kept me focused into 
something else. And being, you know, prior service, we have the capacity to not be afraid to do work. You know, and what I do here is not very physically intensive, but it's a, you know, you have to do it until the job's, you know, done kind of deal. Yeah. Um, if, if, if that kind of makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. And I think um, for what yep. you're saying that actually what you're advising is super, super beneficial and probably more beneficial than um, some of the other advice I've heard people give. You know, they they going to mm-hmm. find a center somewhere is I think what a lot of people are missing. Mm-hmm. So, man, right. I'm going to be totally respectful of your time and say thank you for coming on. Um, if you need anything ever, let me know and I can reach out and give you as much of a hand as you need. And let's stay in touch, buddy. Yes, sir. All right. Yes, sir, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.